A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with Kevin Itry who is the president and managing director of Grace Matthews, where he heads day-to-day management of the firm and leads execution of buy-side, sell-side, and some complex corporate carve-outs across all sectors of the specialty materials and chemical industry. Kevin's a chemical engineer by training and actually worked in the chemical industry prior to going to Grace Matthews and doing what he does there. So anyway, we're going to have a great conversation about what's going on in M&A markets and questions that people ask, including myself all the time. Kevin, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. What's your origin story? What got you interested in chemicals and materials and ultimately led you to Grace Matthews? Yeah. Well, look, thank you. And I, and I think you mentioned some of this in, in uh, the introduction. I have a background in chemical engineering and actually started out of undergrad in production and operations roles. And I, I used to work for a division of ICI Chemical called Unikema. Had the good fortune of working within both the commodity side of the business and the specialty surfactant side of the company. And from there, ventured ventured back to business school and and was for, kind of fortunate enough to meet Grace Matthews and actually went and talked to them to see if I could meet some of their clients. And it led one thing led to another and they they offered me a job. And so it maybe less traditional path to financial services than most, but my start in the chemical industry was truly, truly that in a technical and operations role. Did you know you were gonna go towards financial services or away from chemicals directly when you went to business school? No, I, I, I think very much, uh, if you would have asked me when I started business school, if I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I probably would have laughed at you. I, I would have said that's just not not possible. I think I really enjoyed working in operations. And I think you actually find it when you work in the transactional world, it's solving complex problems and it's troubleshooting and it's trying to manage manage situations when you're not in the room. And I think it's very much like a puzzle, like an engineering problem. And so I think there's definitely parallels between the two. And so it's, it's really been a great fit in terms of skill sets, uh, I think, from, from my engineering training. Awesome. And tell us a little bit about Grace Matthews. Yeah, so yeah, we're an investment bank that exclusively focuses on chemicals and materials, and the vast majority of our work is sell-side work, whether that's, that's someone hiring us to fully sell a business or a partial sale we do do buy side work, but that's a little bit more targeted uh, with clients. And there's 20 of us in, in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I think when you look at our history, we've closed something close to 150 or 200 chemicals or materials deals. Most of those are, are probably below $500 million in transaction value. And in any given year, we're, we're hoping to work on 10 to 12 transactions. Um, 
most of our clients actually break down pretty cleanly. Almost a third of, of clients we work with are privately held businesses. Uh, almost a third are corporate carve-outs and almost a third are, are uh, private equity owned businesses. And so we, we like to say we're trilingual in, in a way that we can speak private entrepreneurial, big corporate and, and private equity. Yeah, interesting. And when people think M&A and, and particularly investment banking, they often think that you guys are the ones bringing the money. But is, is it true that you're much more about deal structure and matchmaking or how would you define it? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's a good good clarification. I, I think when we are representing a seller, our, our job in so many ways is to make a market for a business. And, and we're trying to create a competitive bidding dynamic where we can not only optimize things like valuation and legal terms, but speed and certainty of a deal and, and also intangibles if, if, if there are things desired by a potential seller in, in that case. So I think we're, we're far more in the role of getting someone ready to go and market their business and then execute on the transaction. So it's all advisory work. We don't, we don't do any debt placement and we don't take any, any investment, uh, if that makes sense, Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. Thank you. So what's happening in M&A in 2023? I know early expectations in the year that we, they were going to be somewhat slow, continuing the trend perhaps from 2022. Is that actually what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good question. And maybe let me just say this. I think if you take a step back a little bit, almost 18 months ago to the end of 2021, most people in financial services world would, would say the M&A industry was almost at capacity or you found the capacity of the, the M&A world. If a private owner contacted us in a business in the late part of 2021 and said they wanted to go to market, our advice at that time would be you, you probably should wait. Uh, definitely had times where we were marketing a company, you'd contact a potential buyer and they'd say they don't have the bandwidth to work on a transaction at that point in time. And, and so I, I think the back end of that year was very heavy in terms of deal volume. And, and that alone, I think, led to expectations that 2022 was going to be a little bit slower. Enter 2022, when you have inflation and the interest rates escalating, you, you have an, a war uh, a breakout and continued supply chain problems. You, you have all these these challenges and headwinds present themselves. And I look back at it and you go, yeah, that does make sense why the back half of 2022 was a bit slower. And I think your comment is correct at the start of this year definitely has been, been slower in terms of transaction volumes than, than you had seen in the past. Um, and I think most of that, Victoria, is you don't see a lot of, of large multinational uh, uh, you know, mer- mega deal type type activity, definitely above maybe $500 million, where the financing markets are a little bit more constrained. You haven't seen a lot of transaction activity there. Now, we have been very fortunate in our office. We have remained very busy in this in this time period. And, and so I think there is a bit of a misconception that there is not a lot of deal activity. Definitely down. I, I can give you an example. I talked to an, an equity fund early in the year, and they would say, look, on our Monday staff meetings, we review all of our inbound deal activity, and we're typically talking about 10 to 15 new opportunities. Right now, we're talking about one to two. I mean, that just gives oh, you a wow. sense of that's how scaled back things are. At the same time, though, I think there's others in the financial service world who will say they, they have engagements and that they're ready to push go on some projects. It's really about better timing. And so I I think you will see that that change a bit going forward here, but it has been it has definitely been a slower part of the M and A cycle for sure. The first part of this yeah. year, when you talk about seeing only one to two deals, it recalls 
and I think it might've even been you or you were on a panel that talked about this a full year ago, that the number of potential participants or bidders in a deal has shrunk. Is that still true? Yeah, I'm not, I don't remember the exact context of what we were talking about there, but that, that may have been uh, coming off the heels of what we were saying of people were so busy that it, that mm. it was buyers pick their spots and go, we Got can't it. so much volume in the marketplace and we can only really chase things where we really think we have, have an opportunity. I think what has really changed, Victoria, in that, in that regard is the, the, the deals that we have seen that, that we had success with have two common variables. One is either there's a very strong strategic rationale, and I think that has led to success in transactions. The other is this concept of flight to quality. And um, I think businesses that have performed very well in this environment are getting disproportionate attention when you market them. And I think it's actually different from what you just said. You have more buyers who are very interested. Clearly, your business model is very resilient, very strong yeah. if you're doing well in these times. And I think we've seen it firsthand, and it's led to some very great outcomes on, on transactions that we've been fortunate to be a part of. That's cool. So everyone's favorite question is always multiples. <laughs> I'm sure you hear this on a daily basis. You know, what's the multiple of, of the deal? So what are the multiples that you're seeing? Because we can't talk to you without having that question. And, um, and what are the trends that are affecting it? Yeah, it's a good question all the time. And yes, it always comes up. And yes, we find ways to pivot and say it depends and, and layer it. Tell me about the value proposition of the business, all those things. But let me just say this, that, and I know you have seen newsletters that we send out. We track an index of about 100 public chemicals and materials businesses. And that includes a, a wide array of, of companies from commodity producers to specialties, paints, coatings, water treatment. You kind of name, name the end markets. It's pretty broad. And if you look at that index and you look at the transact or the, the trading multiples of, of that index, over a 10-year period, that index averages about 11 times EBITDA. Right? Now, there's liquidity premiums in size, premiums, all those things linked to it. But it, it, it truly, over the past 10 years, is about an 11 times average. As of the end of May, that was about 10.1 times. So you, you're, you're talking maybe 8 or 9% lower than, than the previous 10-year uh, average is where things are right now. Now, I think when, when you say that, I, I don't necessarily think that means if you take a business, you're going to go, you're worth eight or 9% lower than a, a historical average. This goes back to my flight to quality things of you yeah. actually see things that are performing well, I think actually trade trade for premiums. But I think that in the time that I have been doing this is probably the best proxy in my view of how, how multiples are moving is that index. And, and when you actually try and look for good transaction comp data, it's very, very unreliable and, and it's very hard to find. And especially in an environment where there's not a lot of deal activity, it's, it's even more of a right. challenge to find. Um, so I think that is probably a pretty good uh, proxy. And and I taken one step forward on that question. I think in this environment, uh, and, and maybe we would say this all the time, but I think what's probably more relevant than multiples right now is, is multiple of what? Uh, and, and when you look at, businesses today, the, the number one thing that I think we focus on and, and the, the, the transactional world is faced with is sustainability of run rate. And um, I'll, I'll maybe go down two paths with that. 
one, if, if you take that same index that, that I just referenced, um, a recent newsletter that we put out, we went and looked at what uh, just a random selection of 20 different CEOs, what they were saying about their Q1 performance. And if you, you look at, at, at that, we had 16 companies that was pulled of 20 indicate they saw pretty sizable volume declines in Q1 of this year. Okay. And some of them double digit year over year. Yeah, and in nearly every one of those cases, their their revenue and, and margin held because of better pricing uh, coming off of price increases uh, in, in the most recent environment. And so I, I think when you when you hear volumes are down, uh, everyone recognizes there was all kinds of supply chain corrections happening. And, and when that happened and what the magnitude of of a company that may have bought a year's worth of inventory in terms of concerns that they weren't going to have things and how they bleed that back in. You know, the exact quantification of that, I think, is pretty tricky. And the same thing of how much of that is end market softness is also very hard to dissect. And so I, when you when you look at those things, that that run rate and sustainability of, of performance, in, in my view, is, is really more key to, to valuation than is where the, the multiples are today, um, if that makes sense. And, and I'm sure yeah. as you talk to your clients, you see that volume challenges are, are things that, that are hard to get your head around. You can look at one customer and they might be up in certain products and down in other, and, and people can't answer why, you know, and, and I think that that is the definition of uncertainty. Yeah, completely. And in fact, your point around, you know, inventories in the, in the system, in the supply chain, right? Um, that's been a big factor, the, you know, really for the last six plus months, right? And trying to work their way out of that. So if we're not looking, at, if we're not looking at these multiples, where do you drive your clients when you're thinking about value? Because obviously uh, everybody wants to sell high and buy low. So so what are the factors that you, or the areas that you put um, focus on with your clients? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. And, and you know, I, I think, um, two things to that, Victoria. I, I always take a step back, and we can be asked two questions, right? One is, you know, sorry, we ask two questions. You want me to, to to share input with you, like I'm a shareholder of your company, or have you made the decision that you're selling and tell me how to sell? And if someone asks me a question and says, "Think like you're a shareholder, like you own this business," I, I really kind of break it down into two things: is is the market ready, and is the business ready? And right now, I think you could argue in some cases, the market may not be ready due to just some uncertainty there. And, 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 and I think that is a case by case, business by business and end market by end market. And I think when you take that same question of, is the business ready? I think that's where you really need to do a deep dive and, and look at very granular buildup of, of trends and performance and, and really try and get your arms around this is where the business is headed going forward. And, and I think those things are just critical to the trying to get your head around what you can accomplish in the marketplace, right? And um, so I, that's not really a valuation question. I think it's more of if you can articulate a story of why, where you are today and going forward, it's going to be better. I think you're well suited to be in a position to go to market. If you can't do that and you're going the wrong direction, typically the first question you're going to get from a buyer is, why are you doing this right now? And, and I don't think you want to be on your heels on the start, start of a marketing yeah. process. You want, to be, you want to be in a position of look at how excited we are about our organization and, and the future is going to be better than it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So tying back to maybe a bit of the valuation and the multiple piece, 
capital in the market, right? So we've been hearing about maybe prior to this year, and maybe this is true this year as well, that there's idle capital in private equity, that there's just people just have cash to spend. Um, and that that's been a factor in perhaps multiples, perhaps the volume of transactional activity. Is that still true today? Was that something that was kind of a uh, pre-COVID and into the first year of 2020, 2021, that it's tempering out or not? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the exact time period, but I know you'll hear people say over a trillion dollars of private equity has been raised in the last yeah. few years, and and that that is I I can't that's just a lot of money, right? So I, I it's the, a good story thought, at least. It, it is a good story, and the thought of trying to put a trillion dollars to work is a, a bit intimidating in my view. But but I I think look in 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 my view, Victoria, when I first started doing this, I think we would have said there is probably really 15 to 20, 25 private equity funds who really have a good skill set of investing in the broadly defined chemical and, and material value chain. And maybe eight to 10 years ago, that was something like 40 or 50 funds. And I think now it's maybe well north of 100. And, and that doesn't mean funds that are only investing in, in the chemical industry. That, that would not be true, but that have have chemicals materials as as a a segment that they want to deploy capital in and i think when you have that many that many um uh, companies looking to invest in 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 a segment you just start to see uh you start to see more robust valuations you start to see more robust uh deal terms and and i think that has happened now when you talk about private equity in this current environment and your last few questions were about valuation there's definitely limitations there where the lending world is, is, is a bit more of a challenge right now. And, and again, if you're above $500 million, it's different. I think the lower, lower middle market, there's still ability to, to, find, uh, to find debt, but it, it, is, it is limited. Uh, and I think it's just more expensive. And so I think that pulls back on private equity returns. Um, so I think most funds, generically, if you were to talk to them, they would say, yes, they're they're still actively looking to deploy capital. They're just maybe not as aggressive as a headline number as they would have been 18 months ago. But I think they, you know, that industry, um, you know, when you talk about a trillion dollars and try and summarize that in very simple sentences, I, I think that's like calling the chemical and material industry in very simple, very, very different investment styles by all kinds of different funds. Um, but I think it's fair to say very creative people and they're going to find ways to deploy that capital. And that might be different deal structuring or, or different things. Uh, I definitely think you see that behavior for sure right now. Yeah, cool. So when you look across the chemical and materials science industry today, are there certain segments that are more active? Cause I know you guys are certainly seeing activity within your client yeah. base. So is there some that's more yeah. active than others? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime I get that question, no doubt anyone always wants to find a coatings business or find an adhesives business or a food ingredient business. I think that's a personal care, pure play. I mean, those are always going to be places where someone wants to find a company. All right, so I I'm going to jump in and just say why. Well, I think those from just, your perspective, why are those markets yeah, active? Yeah, I think. I think those those uh, oh, sorry, there might not be as much active activity there. I think there's just a bit more scarcity sometimes with some of those things that it just leads to you know better valuation terms, better outcomes, those things, or there's big strategic big strategics and there's large synergies. I think if you were to ask me where I think you will see a bunch of deal activity going forward, 
it's absolutely in, in broadly defined um, distribution and, and value-added uh, servicing type business models. And, and the reason I say that, Victoria, is there's definitely been multiple instances of private equity funds having successes by, by, by the buy and build platform strategy. There's, there's currently several very uh, high quality private equity owned businesses that are out trying to do um, uh, additional acquisitions uh, to grow. And a lot of the large strategics in that space are very focused on, on M&A as a growth pillar for their company. And you couple that with distribution is just highly fragmented. It just leads to an, a, a kind of a formula of a lot of deal activity. And I think the past few years, if they've demonstrated anything, it's that having strong supply chain capabilities is absolutely core uh, uh, to, to go forward success. And I think a lot of distribution companies have demonstrated that. And so I, I just think in the next, next uh, in the near term and probably the midterm, you're going to see a lot of, of M&A activity and the broadly defined mm -hmm. distribution. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's a market distribution broadly has relatively low barriers to entry, which leads to the fragmentation because people say, oh, I can, you know, I know how to buy and sell product X. And so I can enter in, um, which creates this proliferation, but it's hard to sustain a really viable business for a long time, or it's hard to grow, right? It's hard to grow organically. You can start to a certain point. And so then you start seeing consolidation. And I feel like across that industry, we've gone through this cycle a few times and we probably will a few more um, as, uh, as time goes on, but um, that's, that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. So what advice are you giving buyers today? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the, um, well, let me just say this, Victoria, the, there is a spectrum, right? I mean, you'll meet some companies and their M&A strategy is truly just one of being opportunistic. And if the right deal comes across, they're going to strike at them. There's, there's not much you can really say to someone like that. There's not much advice you can give beyond, yeah, if the opportunity presents itself, you should pursue it. I think then the way other end of the spectrum is we have a very deliberate M&A strategy that absolutely aligns with your your you know, your long-term uh, growth models and, and, and those things. And I think if you're in the, that camp, there are enough challenging things right now that you can always find a reason not to pursue a deal, right? Uh, you only need one voice in a room to say no. Um, I think my advice there is you, you just need to stay the course. And, and, and the benefit a lot of strategics have is they can be very long-term thinkers. And and you're just going to have to get comfortable in this environment that you might have imperfect information. It can be hard, like like you were mentioning minutes ago. A company that's got a year's worth of inventory and at high valued prices, and their margins look weird because they're bleeding those things. I mean, you're just going to have to get comfortable that 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 is is there. But I think there's some great opportunities. Um, you know, so I, again, my advice to buyers would stay the course. Uh, don't don't let uncertainty knock you off of what your long term strategic plans are. Yeah. How do you, and then flip it around for sellers. What, what's your advice for sellers? Well, the, the first one all the time, I think is, is, and this is not unique to today in this environment, but I, I do find it interesting that most of the, the private equity world, you'll hear them say, we tend to invest in businesses for five to seven years. And at the time they're underwriting their initial investment, they're focusing on their exit. Uh, so they're, they're thinking about their exit five to seven years. And so the, the, if you're a private owner, I always just try and reinforce the, if you know a sale is coming at some point in time in your corporate life, 
start planning for it. Uh, professional investors do that, right? So yeah. if there, there must be a reason for it. But I think that that's just a, a global statement that has nothing to do with today's current environment. I just think that's a good practice uh, uh, for anyone. I think in this environment, go back to what, what we talked about a few minutes ago about sustainability of run rate. I think in, in any any deal world, um, you always want to be prepared. I think diligence scrutiny is just magnified right now, and you need to be prepared uh, before you start a process. And I, I think that upfront heavy lift leads to such a better better path at, at the back end of things. And so uh, the advice that I have for sellers today is you really need to sit and, and do the heavy lift upfront and spend time uh, if you can going through a sale process is a major organizational strain and you want to make sure you get it right. Uh, um, and so your homework before you start. Yeah. Interesting. So ESG going in a different direction here than you might expect, Kevin, that's okay. Um, ESG has been really is such a focus right now. What role does it play in deals? And my observation when I talk with companies and work with companies is that many smaller companies feel like they're not as well prepared. Their sustainability strategy or the ESG strategy is not as well articulated, and they sometimes feel like it doesn't have to be. Is that true in a buy-sell perspective? Is this is it playing an important role in transactions? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Victoria. And and um, I, I really think the joke I have with the same thing with valuation, all these things you always got to start with, it depends and you got to look at the specific business and situation. I think what we're definitely seeing more of is um, when, when you work through a transaction and you get to a certain point in a deal, you're going to start seeing functional experts start in and tax diligence and insurance diligence and HR diligence. You're definitely starting to see more and more of there's an ESG diligence work stream that, that is part of a transaction. Um, and, and exactly what questions and, and, and what they're seeking, um, I think is clearly a case by case thing. But, but the fact that that presents itself tells you that, that it is starting to become more and more of a focus area in the transaction world. And, and you know, so again, I, I, I think um, it's, it's also true that you'll talk to some buyers and they will tell you the first question that they get asked internally when they evaluate a new opportunity is, does this enhance our ESG initiatives? And if the answer is no, it doesn't mean that they won't pursue the transaction. It just means the hurdle that it needs to, to overcome to get internal support are that much higher. Um, you know, so it, it is, it's definitely more, more of a discussion topic in the transactional world. As you know, some of these things don't have concrete definitions and there aren't concrete metrics. And so it makes it a little harder to give a very concise answer to that. But it is it is a it is becoming more and more common uh, in, in, in the transactional um, process uh, for sure. Sorry. Yeah, interesting. So, um, what should we look? What should we be looking for in the second half of twenty twenty three? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I would maybe just say this. I I think that. Um, I think if Q2 is a pretty strong quarter, I think you will see a fair amount of activity repick up in the back half of, of this year. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish that, that that's, that will be the case. And I think if, 
you still see some some soft performance in, in Q2 uh, um, and you don't see a volume pickup start to happen, it could be a pretty rough back half of the year. So I, I don't know if I gave you an answer to that. I kind of gave you the both scenarios that could play out, but I think I, I fall more into the camp of you're going to see more and more activity start to ramp yeah, up. I think, I think everybody's hoping, let's just say everybody's hoping that the year it improves as we go along, um, right. just from a pure financial and business perspective. And that's going to play through in the M&A world as well. Right, right. Exactly right. Well, good. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today on The Chemical Show. We've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Victor. I greatly enjoyed it. Yeah. And thanks everyone for listening. Keep listening, following, sharing, and we will be back with another episode soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.